Welcome to Robriety, the podcast about sobriety, mental health, and wellness for men, women, and the men and women who love it. Here are your hosts, Scott Graham and Derek Bowen. Scott. Derek. How you doing, man? Good, buddy. How are you? Good. Welcome to episode three of Brobriety, uh, sobriety, mental health, and wellness for men, women, and the men and women who love them. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. On We're recording this on uh, the holiest of days. This is uh, International Men's Day, um, which I know uh, always made me cringe a little bit seeing it because it, it kind of evokes feelings of that, like... Um, uh, the men's what, rights crap. Well, like you, you yeah. know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, but uh, this year, I think at least for me personally, it took on kind of a whole new meaning where it's just like, yo, let's support men. Let's normalize talking about our emotions. Uh, and to that extent, we are joined today by Austin, Texas's Chris Marshall. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, Chris is an event curator, mental health advocate, co-founder of Sober by Southwest and owner of Sands Bar, a sober bar community based in Austin, Texas. Uh, in addition to his award-winning bar in Austin, Chris has produced alcohol-free social events in over 15 cities across the United States and Canada uh, and aims to offer elevated connection-centered experiences sans alcohol. Uh, Chris, you were also, when I first really kind of leaned into my sober identity uh, and joined that whole uh, Instagram sober community, I'm pretty sure you were like probably the first account I followed. So, Oh, that's awesome. Uh, since then, you've been uh, a really strong voice for uh, for sobriety and for men's health and and I do appreciate what you're doing out there. So thank you. And thanks for joining us. Well, I appreciate the invitation. Um, I'm so glad that we found each other on Instagram uh, for all the ills of social media. Uh, sometimes good connections do happen. So I'm glad we connected. Sometimes, R- rarely, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the yeah. exception, not the rule. Um, Definitely. So I think to, to get things started, like just tell us who, who is Chris Marshall? Who are you? Mm-hmm. What do you identify as? Uh, who Who is the person you are? Who is the person that I am? Um, I am a whole lot of things. You know, that that intro that you read, um, those are all the things, that, those are all the highlights of who Chris Marshall is. Uh, those are all the things that I show the world, and that's all of what most people understand Chris Marshall to be. But I am so many uh, other dimensions beyond uh, what people see even in my most vulnerable, I'm pretty vulnerable on social media. I'm pretty out about my mental health and uh, my substance use history. Uh, I'm, I'm very open about those things. But I think even beyond what's always visible, there's this you know, underworld of uh, a man who is still nurturing the very boy part of him. Uh, the part of me that uh, really struggled to understand what it was to be a man and still in many ways at 37 years old and a parent of two kids grappling with what that means, what manhood means. Um, I'm a friend. Uh, I'm a creative person. I am an advocate for, for amplifying voices that are marginalized and not often heard. Uh, I am a human being having a spiritual experience and a spirit being having the very human experience of being in relationships with people um, on a professional level, on a personal level. Uh, I am, I just exist. And I, I take each day as an adventure. 
That's awesome, that, man. That's I, a fantastic I, answer. I, I love that answer. This is <laughs> like a deliberately uh, yeah. vague and ambiguous question. So yeah, yeah. Uh, it's that really was... interesting to to hear how people yeah. define themselves. And, wow. Um, you know, I think something that uh, that sobriety definitely assists with for a lot of people is is kind of starting to like once you remove that distraction or that veil from yourself, you really start getting more keyed into. Uh, to who the the real you is so you know i i love that answer that was super thoughtful so thank you that's awesome yeah so so you you talked about um like being a father and and what masculinity looks like there when you were when you were growing up what what was that example that was set for you like what was it what did you see growing up as like a masculine example um that sort of shaped who you were maybe and who you are now do you see any parallel between uh masculinity and substance abuse um what what do you have to say about that yeah so my my journey uh to understand like who i am um and who i am as a as a man started at age five uh my father was a pro amateur boxer and from what i what i've learned he was pretty good uh he was uh, kind of like a uh, low rent looking Muhammad Ali. Like he just, <laughs> it just very similar skin complexion and uh, was just tall, you know, broad shouldered. And uh, the very first memory I have in my life, the, the very first thing that I can remember was, is this foggy vision of me sitting on top of my dad's shoulders as he was jogging uh, up and down a hill training. And I would, might've been, four, maybe five at the time. Uh, that's the, kind of like the earliest memory that I, that I clearly have that that's all mine. That's not something someone fed to me. I remember that for myself. And I remember sitting on top of his shoulders and that was my idea of a man that he was my hero. Uh, when I was five, I think almost kind of moving into age six, my father uh, would later be diagnosed with mental, a uh, mental illness called paranoid schizophrenia. And his paranoia impacted the way that he saw me, saw my mom and my sister, how he saw the entire world. And so before our eyes, we saw, or, and I saw more specifically, I saw my hero, the, the, the person I saw as a man, just disintegrate. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember uh, seeing him at maybe age six or seven, and he was in a mental health hospital. And he was this broad-shouldered human being that had been reduced to this skeleton in a corner. And I remember his frame was just crumbled. Just his whole body had turned inward. And uh, he was unrecognizable. And my grandmother, my mom's mom, said, um, you are the man of the house. <laughs> and I just remember that feeling of a battlefield promotion at age six. Like, you're the man. And at age six, I had no idea what that looked like. And the only idea of what I thought that looked like was sitting in a hospital somewhere, a shell of himself. And so the idea of of manhood and understanding, frankly, boyhood terrified me. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't know what to be. I didn't know who to be. And so I I quickly invented my heroes and my saints. Uh, I started to do, I was always a reader. I mean, so, you know, as soon as I could read, you know, proficiently uh, around, you know, 
second or third grade, I, I just consumed every book I could. Yeah. Uh, and I just started to form my idea of what men were through books, uh, through movies. Uh, I started to take characters on TV and interject them into what I thought it was to be a man. That's, That's uh, right. yeah, that, uh, I had a lot of that growing up too. Not, not the, the stuff with your father, but the, the book characters and TV characters and movie characters. That was a huge theme for me. And I, I feel like I'm 42 years old and I feel like that's still something that uh, affects, like if I latch on to a character, I find myself like picking up mannerisms and, and you know, saying catchphrases them, yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something. Wow. Hmm. Chris, that's a, that's a wild story. Um, and definitely like that's, yeah. that's a heavy weight for a, for a six-year-old kid to carry, right? Like how, um, wh- what's, what did it look like to, to be the man of the house and how did you kind of carry that, that responsibility out, um, in the absence of, of your father being there? I don't know, but I just caught myself using the phrase battlefield promotion and, I don't think I've ever said that out loud. Like it, it was a, it felt like I was in the middle of a war yeah. and I was now being tasked with defending. And there were several instances from, you know, age six to maybe 11 or 12 where I felt woefully inadequate in being a man. Um, I remember my, we had an incident where one of my dad's family members was intoxicated came to the house where my single mother, myself and my sister were living. And he was just drunk and yelling and, you know, swearing. It was a very scary situation. And I remember thinking to myself, I cannot defend my mom or my sister. Like I, I need to probably, I should probably go out there and say something, but I was just, I was a kid. I was scared too. And my mom, of course, you know, she, um, that, that, mother's instinct kicked in and she became a junkyard dog and like, you know, just shouted him out and he left. Right. (laughs) Um, you know, she was going to protect her children and and she did. But I remember in that moment, just feeling like, gosh, like I just, I just can't do this. Like I'm just not man enough because I can't protect enough. I can't defend enough. Um, I don't have everything I need to have at, you know, seven or eight, like I don't have it yet. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's like a, you look back now and that's, that's a totally rational thing for you to believe. Like you were a child, like how, how could you have been expected to, to step in, in that situation? But like, that's, that's something that can, can haunt someone or stay with them for a long time. Those feelings of inadequacy. Um, I know there were situations when, um, I'm, I'm a child of divorce and, and my parents had a pretty contentious divorce and, and there were times, uh, we lived with my mom who was a single mother and, and same thing. There were incidents with, uh, with my dad where, you know, I, I felt like I had failed because I didn't do enough to protect my family. But like, you know, you're, you're a young kid. <laughs> like, how could you ever be expected to do that? Yeah. Right. And, and no adult in my life expected me to be anything but a kid. I think I put that expectation on myself. And I told my mom that story a couple of years ago. Like, do you remember that? You remember how scary that was. And she was like, it was, it was scary, but I never expected you to do anything. I was the adult and it wasn't as bad. She's like, you know, in your mind, it was a very scary situation, but in my mind, it was some drunk on our lawn. We just needed to go home. 
Like that was like, that was it. But to you, it felt like you were not safe. And so we, you know, she, she teaches trauma now. So we often have these conversations about how, like how trauma impacts um, the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see ourselves in context with the rest of the world. And uh, this is just one of those instances where it was an early trauma and early message about how I was not man enough. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. And we'll, uh, we'll circle back to that in a little bit, but, um, I'd, I'd like to get a clearer idea. Um, obviously you're, you're a huge advocate in the sober community. You've been, uh, an addiction counselor. You now promote these spaces for, uh, sober people to kind of get together and, uh, and be themselves. But I'd like to know what, what brought you there? Like, can we talk a little bit about, uh, your, your journey to sobriety and, uh, when you first started drinking and kind of what your relationship with alcohol was like? Yeah. So it it just is a continuation of that story. Honestly, It, it really is. Uh, you know, I go through middle school and I was always different in some capacity. And, and a lot of that again was me seeing myself as divergent or different from the rest of the world around me. In some cases, there was actual real differences. You know, I I moved to Houston uh, when I was in elementary school. And for all of its diversity, uh, I happened to be one of a handful of children of color in my school. And I felt different because I I could see that I was different. Um, You know, I go kind of middle school and high school, and I was not as wealthy as everyone else. And uh, I often had uh, these depressive episodes at, you know, 13 and 14. So I always felt different from everyone else around me. Um, no one else had this issue with their father who was um, mentally ill. Uh, my parents did divorce when I was five. So I was also a child of divorce from five until, you know, the rest of my life. And so uh, I contended with that feeling of inadequacy and not feeling uh, cool enough, rich enough, white enough, black enough. Um, and then man enough. And the first time I found a group of guys, uh, I was about 16 years old. And this, this group of guys just kind of adopted me into their circle. And, and that's when I had my first drink. I had made a decision because I, my family, my mom's family is very religious. And I had kind of seen the, the effects of alcohol and drugs in people's lives. And so I knew at 16, I knew that I did not want to drink or drug. Um, because I, I knew that that was a mistake, but I saw my other friends doing it and I felt like this was a way to belong. And so the first time I ever had a drink, it was on a hot July day in Texas. Uh, it was a field of people and we drank the hottest, nastiest beers. <laughs> and the first thought, you know, as the liquid crossed the barrier between like innocence and destruction across my lips. I remember the first thought I had was, this is disgusting. And then the second thought I had was, this is amazing because I did this with my friends. I did it with my boys. I, was a, yeah. I did it with my boys. And for me, that was a ritual, a rite of passage, a, a seminal moment. And for those guys, it was another day. But for me, it meant everything. It was transformative almost like. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah. and again, I've had, I've had the, the pleasure to talk to those guys. We've stayed in touch via you know, social media. They don't remember the day. They have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> They're like, yeah. vaguely, I remember. I'm like, no, no, no. You remember exactly. 
for them, it meant nothing. But for a kid who was always trying to find where he fit in this world, it was a real moment. And that would kind of be the theme the rest of like high school and into college. I was looking to belong, looking to fit in. Um, College came along and there was an opportunity to join a fraternity, which was just like exactly what I I was like, oh my gosh, you mean I have like... (laughs) this group of people that I can belong to and they belong to me and, and, you know, we can do crazy things together and, and they won't leave me. And this is about being a man. Oh yes. Sign me up. Uh, <laughs> when you put it like that, it sounds pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. It was none of those things. Yeah. 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 It sounds it like it's going to be great. Yeah. So yeah, the brochure was great. Yeah. 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 The cover's always nice, but just don't read the inside. <laughs> so, uh, so at what point did you realize that something needed to change at what, like when you decided that uh, maybe enough was enough, was there like a moment or was it a gradual thing? What did that look like for you? Well, the first time I, you know, got really drunk, I knew there was, it was a problem. I, I knew I knew I couldn't drink successfully. I knew, I mean, the second time I ever consumed alcohol, I told my mother's car and I ended up in jail. Like I just, I just wasn't made for it. It was, it was like, yeah. I wasn't cut out to drink. It happen. was never going to be something that was going to be successful. I was never going to be good at it. Um, same thing with other substances, like time and time again, it, I proved to myself that I wasn't able to handle it, but I stayed attached to it because I felt like it was the only way I could connect to people. So the the light started to flicker, you know, right? And I started to recognize that it was a real problem when people started to leave me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was around age 22 or 23. I had gotten kicked out of college. I'm working at Subway uh, part-time. Uh, I'm drinking every single second I'm awake. I don't fall asleep. I pass out. And I'm just aware that I am losing people that, that I, that I wanted to be a part of. I'm losing every romantic relationship I have. No woman wants to deal with me because I am such a mess. Um, my, my own family, um, is afraid of me. My sister is afraid of me and, and everything that I feared, uh, becoming everything I didn't want to be that I saw my dad do and become, I was becoming. And that to me was the breaking point. And so at 23, I, I entered treatment and, uh, was surrounded by another group of people, men and women this time. But there is particular, in particular one man who just kept asking me the same question over and over again when I was in rehab. He kept asking me, do you feel a part of? And I'm like, a part of what? <laughs> He's like, a part of anything. Do you feel a part of life, of society? Do you feel like you have a friend network? Do you feel like you belong? And he would ask me that every single day for the first six months of my sobriety. And eventually I was able to say, yeah, I do feel a part of, I feel a part of this community that held me up and loved me until I could love myself. I feel a part of, uh, this, this, uh, you know, kind of friend guys that we go all kind of hang out and, and, you know, have coffee with them. And and I didn't look anything like these people, right. I didn't, I didn't have any, the same money that they did. I was significantly younger. I was 23 years old and hanging out with 50 year old guys have been sober longer than I've been alive. (laughs) But it was belonging. And for the first time, I felt like it was real belonging, not just holding on and hanging on to destructive and corrosive relationships. I, I actually, I love that, uh, 
do you feel a part of? Like as someone, yeah. you know, I, I drank for a lot of the same reasons. And Scott, I, I, don't, oh, yeah. I don't know about you, yeah. but like, yeah, just to find that that sense of belonging that had just eluded you your entire life. Um, so to finally hit a point where, um, and again, like I've, I've been sober for what, or we've been sober, I guess we sobered up right around the same time, right so, around the like same five, time, uh, five, almost five years. But, um, yes. again, that's, yes. uh, that sense of, of belonging, um, in, in even the sober community took, it took a long time to get there. And, and yeah. I think, um, we can come back to this in a bit, but like part of that is, getting to getting to know and like truly feel comfortable in your own skin and accepting yourself first and then understanding that people accept you for who you are not just not just a guy with a bottle or a drinking buddy or um even maybe a lot of those more superficial ways we identify a lot of the time but Mm -hmm. like you know a meaningful connection with other people um and that takes us kind of to okay so you got sober and for a lot of people that that would be enough like that would be the the final stage to them they belong to your this community now uh they feel supported and encouraged but you wanted to take that one step further um so what what did the journey uh after you you quit drinking to creating sansbar and and kind of building this global community uh what does that look like well, I was 23, so I didn't have much going on. <laughs> like, that's just the reality. <laughs> like, I, I, when you ask it, that question, I'm like, why did I take the turn that I did in life? Well, it was because I didn't have a career. I really didn't even finish college. There was nothing, you know, in my life that was set in stone. So I, I kind of had a clean slate. Uh, I went back to school, finished school, uh, got a, a, you know, education in becoming a counselor, became a counselor, did that for eight years. And in my time as a counselor, I noticed that people would go to treatment, get better. But then as soon as they had to return back to the real world, they were saddled with the the hard, difficult, incredibly difficult task of finding a new social group. And I noticed that there was a clear line between those who succeeded and those who failed. And it wasn't money, it wasn't support, it wasn't uh, a spouse or anything else. It really was having a community of people and those that had a community that was supporting them, that they felt safe in, they would succeed. And those who didn't would ultimately go back to that same negative friend group and they would go back and relapse. And so I just saw this happening and I was working at a, you know, kind of County thing here in Austin. So you're, you know, I'm, the, the turnover rates, you know, high. I'm seeing like thousands of people a year, which is, you know, again, just crazy, a crazy caseload. But it helped me to see that this pattern was not just a one-off kind of thing. This was systemic. And the treatment industry just accepted that this was what happens. People either get better or they don't. And if they don't, it's their fault. And we just have to move on. We can't change the system. And so I had to leave the system because I wanted to create a space where people could find community and feel a part of. And that the answer to that is Sandsbar. So I'm going to kind of go off script here. 2007, like the sort of non-alcoholic scene is to me feels really new, but you were doing this 13 years ago. You were like yeah. the guy, the first guy. And like, so who, who did you tell that you were going to open a bar 
that well, didn't I mean, serve alcohol. <laughs> so, so the idea did not come right away. Yeah. You know, again, I, I did, you know, you know, almost, you know, eight or nine years of sobriety before this yeah. came along. And, and when, and frankly, 13 years ago, there wasn't even a conversation. There was no idea of a sobriety spectrum 13 years ago. All there was black and white, sober, not sober. Yeah. And you could, if you weren't in recovery or didn't want to identify as you not in recovery, you weren't ready or whatever it was and you weren't welcomed. And so you, you have to kind of fend for yourself. And I'm mm-hmm. grateful that that has changed so much in a decade plus, but yeah. And you know, when I got sober, there was not many options. Uh, you know, the best, the best substitute was sitting around with a bunch of old guys drinking coffee. That was, <laughs> that was about as good as you were going to get. I mean, that and, still sounds pretty good. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, awesome. it's awesome. You know, now I'm that old guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. You guys should be the old guy. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm the old guy with these, with these young kids, but I, I didn't have any options. So yeah, it took me going, you know, being a counselor for, for several years before this really became something that I could see as a possibility. Um, I also started to kind of shop around and look at what's, what's kind of happening across the country in, in America. And there were small kind of iterations of this, but in 2017, something just incredible happened. Uh, you know, Ruby Warrington wrote the book, Sober Curious, and it created this wave. And uh, there's a couple, you know, beverage companies that were founded in 2017. And I just happened to find found Sands Bar in 2017. And so there was just this wave and I happened to be in the water at the right time. And I just, as this wave crested, I just rode the wave. Uh, so people were like, oh yeah, like you created something like, no, I just happened to be in the water at the right time because if it would have been, you know, 2007, there was no wave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, but yeah, that's, that's true. But also a lot of people were in the water at the same time as you, time but you're as you, the one yeah. that jumped up on they, the surfboard they and, off it, you know what I mean? like, and you, you kept yeah, it going man, for you sure. Should, you should be proud of that. Cause it's huge. Like you're, you're the, the first, like it, yeah, I think it's fantastic. I think it's uh, it's a great thing that you're doing. Um, so what, what is, what is the mission of Sandsbar? Like, what do you, what do you see as its purpose? As it's like greater purpose? What do you, what do you see that as? Well, and that's evolved um, a lot over the last three years. Uh, I, I think at its heart, Sandsbar is a social wellness experience brand. And if you notice that nothing in there says sobriety. Um, yeah, I did notice I believe- that actually. That's really, that's, that's cool. <laughs> and that's because I believe that any journey into wellness will, will ultimately lead to sobriety because you cannot be your best if you're consuming alcohol. So, and that also indicates that this is for everyone. This is not just for people who identify as being sober serious. It it really speaks to the whole spectrum of people and and, and everyone's on that spectrum, spoiler alert. Like if you drink every single day, you know, you're not, you know, you're not sober serious, but you can become maybe sober curious or maybe sometimes sober, right? If you're, unless you're like me who was drinking every day, they were, Every, every second they were awake, um, which is rare. Most people, even if they drink, they're sober sometimes. And if you can be sober sometimes, this is a space for you. So, yeah, I think that's what Sands Bar is at its heart. Um, it started as a brick-and-mortar sober bar here in Austin, Texas. And in 20, 
2019. Try to think about what year we're in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's so hard to remember sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. In 2019, which is just last year, which is just crazy to think. Feels, feels like um, a decade ago at this it point. It feels like a decade ago. <laughs> yep. um, but in 2019, decided to take this idea on the road because I, I kept getting these messages from people like, oh, I hear, you know, it got a lot of press. And I'm like, I'm going to come to you. So, you know, Seattle, Portland, Anchorage, Alaska, went up to Toronto, uh, did an event in Toronto yep. uh, and was planning to go back to Toronto and go to hop over to Vancouver this year. But of course, COVID happened. Yeah, but yeah, right. I mean, it That's was just right. the idea of kind of spreading this beyond what, what was happening in Austin. I love that, uh, that it's, it's a sober bar with sobriety in mind, but it's so inclusive that you just like, you expand it to everyone and you're like, Hey, uh, we are going to make all people welcome here in order to, to build and strengthen this community. So definitely a cool vibe. I mean, even as recently as five years ago, um, when I stopped drinking, it was your options were like AA or nothing. And I think the reason AA is so successful, uh, for a lot of people is that it just, it offers people a community when like all you've known is your drinking buddies for so long. So, mm-hmm. um, we're once COVID's over, we are very stoked to, uh, to get Sands bar up here and, and make something happen with that. So, Oh, it's, yeah. it's going to happen. Uh, I have so many contacts across, uh, North America now. And I just, I've spent this whole quarantine just like mapping out what that's going to look like. And so, yeah, I am super duper excited about coming to Canada, coming, uh, going across North America, just having this, this great experience. Um, I, oh, I will say this. I, I, want, I wanted to say kind of to your point about this is for everyone. So Sands Bar, it sits on a corner a lot and the corner lot is like a row of bars. It's like one of those, those, you know, cities or the streets where there's bars on every corner and people walk into Sands Bar not knowing what we are. Nice. And it's incredible to, to watch that experience wash over someone's face. Like you can literally see them processing it, you know, just like, what is this? Because it feels different. It doesn't smell like alcohol, but if you close your eyes, it's a bar. There's music playing, there's drinks clinking, there's people busting tables. Like it, it, it sounds like a bar. And so we, we really don't want to just make it just for sober, serious people. We really want to make this available and accessible to everyone, provided they can ex, uh, respect our boundary of not uh, serving alcohol or, or being intoxicated in our space. So I have a question for you. Um, why, why did you make it? A, a bar like why why was it so important to you that you emulate the bar experience versus um say just creating like a, a coffee shop or uh i don't know what the other options are. <laughs> to me a coffee coffee shop or bar was the only places i would ever hang out um but what's what was important to you about providing that bar experience oh so uh as i started doing my research and because i thought about you know maybe just making it a coffee shop that was a cool place to kind of hang out and that just did not seem to scratch a personal itch for me. I missed the bar. Um, I, and, and there's such a history of bars and taverns in North America that I think people don't understand. Like it's, it's really ingrained in like our society and how we, how we decide how to build town, how we decided to build towns and um, the founding of this country most of it transpired in a bar. In a bar, yeah. So, 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 so most of 
most of who we are as a people, as, as a continent, really, is this kind of bar culture. And I felt like it was very important to tap into that. And there's just a camaraderie that you find at the bar uh, there's, that you can't find at Starbucks. Um, you know, when you go to Starbucks, it's not like you're going to, hey, Chris, how's it going, man? You, know, you, you don't, don't have the regulars, that. right, every yeah. day sitting at the bar. Yeah. You're lucky if they write your name on the cup properly. That's that's the camaraderie <laughs> yes. you get at <laughs> and it's and, and you know what? When someone, when a, a barista remembers your order, it's it's like, oh, my gosh, I've arrived. And <laughs> that shouldn't be that way. I just, I, you know, I feel like that should not be the only uh, space. And so, you know, I, I did a lot of, like, you know, research and, talking to people in, in, you know, the beverage industry and looking at the Starbucks model, really. And that's, that, that's always been my, my goal. That's always been my, my kind of landmark wherever I am. It's just my true North is to create a third space that is as accessible and ubiquitous as Starbucks. I want there to be a space that is a sober space that feels cool, sexy, and safe for everyone. And I want it to be everywhere. So yeah, that, that, uh, it just could not be anything else other than a bar for me. It just, I, I tried, I, I really like, okay. And I got the same questions, you know, why can't it, it has to be a bar for me and it has to look and feel like a real bar experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, get I mean, I get it, man. I miss yeah. that too. You know, I spent lots I really of time, do. even, yeah. even now, like I still, uh, Scott, I don't know about you, but I, I have to go to bars lots to, to socialize with friends. Yep. And like, I'm, yep. I'm lucky in that. I think I've hit a point now where I'm comfortable enough in my sobriety that I can like set foot in a bar without feeling overly triggered. But yeah, I feel that way too. But at the same time, when you go to those bars, there's not a lot of options for you to drink other than water or no, coffee yeah. or, or, like, you know, a Coke so, or something. So you know? water, yeah. 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 So yeah. Having, having actual legitimate non-alcoholic, bar drinks in a bar where you go to a bar and you get that whole experience, the, the sounds and the, the, you know, the, the people and everything like, man, I was actually supposed to come to Austin this year to go to the formula one race. So thanks a lot, COVID. I would have been there uh, for sure. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, man. Anyways, next, next year, next, next year. year. Yeah. Next year. Um, <laughs> so that's a, a kind of a nice segue to uh, you posted something on your Instagram stories recently and it, it really resonated with me. Um, but basically uh, you put, it was some like uh, be so completely yourself that everyone feels safe to be themselves too. Um, and I think for a lot of people, uh, or maybe I'm just projecting definitely for me, uh, I feel like my substance abuse issues kind of manifested because of, of a lack of safety to be myself or just like this overall discomfort with, um, with who I actually was. So now that it's your mission to to kind of be yourself and and ensure everyone else has the space to be themselves, um, when you wanted to start connecting with the real you when you initially sobered up, and I imagine you're still on this journey like we all are, uh, how did you go about that? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean it. It first of all that quote. Uh, you know, if I had if I had the money, I'd probably get that tattooed or representation of that tattooed on my body because I I believe in that so much. At the end of my life, I want to say that I completed that. Um, and that's how strongly I believe in those words is just to be myself and to be vulnerable. And so, uh, yeah, that journey for me started off with finding 
safe relationships to be vulnerable and to take all the masks off and to let go of the armor. And for me, that did come in 12-step groups and talking to other men and just getting all the way honest, which I had never managed to do my entire, it was always some semblance of the truth. It was a shade of truth, but never the whole truth. And uh, I remember the first time I sat across the table in a coffee shop with someone and I just told him the truth. And when the, when that other person didn't run away, they didn't scream, but said, you know what? Me too, man. <laughs> like, or that's it. Like I was just blown away. I, I know my whole life I had imagined that the second I was completely honest, uh, the world would just open up and swallow me. I, I just was convinced that you could not be completely honest. And, uh, oh man, just the freedom, the, the freedom, the freedom in that moment was the same freedom I felt on my dad's shoulders as a kid. It was that same sense of flying. It was that same sense that I am on the shoulders of someone and I'm okay and I'm protected. It, it was the, it was the first time I think I really felt protected, honestly, now that I think about it, like, I knew that whatever I was telling this man was safe, that he wasn't going to go tell anyone else. Um, this also, this, ther- this, uh, these kind of relationships also presented themselves also in therapy. So I started, you know, going to therapy uh, when I was about maybe two years sober. So as I was going to school to become a uh, counselor, I started going to, in, into therapy. And that was another safe relationship where I could just abandon all those walls and just be myself. And the more, I practiced that. The better I got at it, the better I started to feel. And as a brand, as Sandsbar, because I do have it, I do have my own private Instagram account. It's Chris Connected, which no one ever visits, and I never post. Uh, <laughs> like I just never post anything. People tag me, and I'm just like, okay. Like I post pictures of my kids randomly, and that's about it. But I, I made the very deliberate decision to make my Sandsbar account more than just pretty people at a pretty bar. Uh, I I just, because I I felt like this wasn't going to be my thing unless I put myself into it. And so, yeah, a lot of what comes out of the Sands Bar account is kind of bar related stuff and drink stuff and, you know, that kind of cool stuff. But a lot of it is just Chris. It's just me sharing my thoughts, sharing who I am, showing up in a way that doesn't always, um, look the best. It doesn't look always look on brand. Uh, I've been told by several marketing people, like you really need to separate yourself from your brand. And, you know, they're, they're, they're probably good at what they do. But if my mission really is to be so much of myself, then I have to live that. And, and for me, it looks like um, when I feel safe enough to do so to, to share up and offer up what's going on in my inner world. Are those uh, are those marketing people men by any chance? Oh, of course. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, so yeah, just a nice little tap dance segue into my next question here. Um, what what do you think it is about men that it's so hard for men to be vulnerable and them true their true selves? Like, it's still hard for me. I've been sober for almost five years. I had this conversation yesterday with my partner about how I feel like a fraud 
a lot of the time. Like the stuff that you post on the internet, it's not really authentically who I am. And I haven't been using social media the way I used to. Um, I'm trying to be more mindful about it, but I feel like I'm failing. Like I feel like, yeah, I feel like it's, it's not coming across who I really am. It's always like a little bit of a show. Um, what, what is it about men? Why, why do we do this to ourselves? Why? <laughs> that is a, that's a million dollar question. <laughs> yeah, you know? um, the best, the, the best answer I, I can offer up and I don't speak for all men. And frankly, we have to be mindful of the, the fact that, um, not all men are, or, or individuals who identify as men are not always born men. Um, and that's, you know, that's something that I, I'm always cognizant of is that, you know, we always come to this idea, this word of man uh, with very different experiences, orientations and histories. But for me personally, um, I think it's because we've conditioned ourselves to be uncomfortable with men being emotional um, after everything that you just heard me say for the last, you know, 40 minutes, um, I've been guilty of questioning if my son or telling my son, like, Hey, that's enough. Or, you know, like that's enough, you know, that's enough crying or whatever. And, and, yeah, and yeah. I have to catch oh, myself. Man. I have to catch myself because I've, I've done that. And then I say to myself, Oh, you really are doing the same thing that you are so against, like you're doing it yourself. And I feel like that's because we've conditioned ourselves to be uncomfortable with male um, expression of emotion. The Except only for, acceptable, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, there, there's one that's okay to it. Yeah, I was going to you you beat me to it, Derek. Um, yeah, there's, there's <laughs> only one form of, of emotion that we are okay with. And um, when I was taking psychology classes, I, I was often told that, you know, men explode and individuals who identify as women implode. But what I, I've often realized is that men are capable of imploding all the time. And there's men who implode every single day. They don't shoot up a mall or a school or anything horrible like that. They just end their own lives or they slowly um in their own lives and silence their voices by, by drinking or substance use. Like men implode because we're not taught that expression of emotion is an acceptable thing. I, I, I really feel like as a society, in the Western world anyways, we are uncomfortable with men expressing any other emotion other than anger. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. It's uh it's 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 nice to have three men here that can talk about this stuff because I feel like if other men and people who identify as men can hear the, the three of us talk about this stuff, it's okay. It's okay to feel. It's okay to love. It's okay to be sad. It's okay. It's just okay. It's okay to cry. Like there's there's nothing wrong with you. It doesn't make you less of a, a quote unquote man. If that's how you feel, you know, it does, you don't want to keep it inside uh, because when you do, it just comes out as anger. And uh, like you said, that's, that's the, the one emotion that men are taught is okay for them. And man, I can tell you that that's gotten me in a lot of trouble over the years. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Comes out as anger or comes out as substance abuse issues or comes out or as both relationship or yeah, or, or any yeah. combination of them. Um, the thing you said about telling your kid to stop crying, I re- that really resonated with me. Cause like, yeah, yeah same thing. Like I, I try to be this woke guy who's in touch with his emotions. Uh, but then, you know, my kid's crying about something and I'm like, well, what, why are you crying about that? Like, we don't need to get upset about these things. Uh, and it really just does, uh, does perpetuate that. So, yeah, I mean, it does, it does no favors for my ego to admit that, but I would be not, I would not be honest if I said that I was always perfect at that. And what I've learned to do over the years is to question my discomfort with it, not their, what they're doing or how they're emoting, but like, why are, why am I uncomfortable with that? Why am I uncomfortable with, uh, you know, another person identifies as a man doing this or saying that, like what, what in me, you know, is, is impacted or bothered by this. And I feel like, you know, like you're saying, we're having this great conversation with just these three men. I feel like there's this myth that men don't have a deep emotional world. Yes, uh, that is a stereotype. And sometimes I'm complicit in upholding that stereotype, (laughs) right? But darn it, it's just not true. You know, as a clinician, most of my clients were male and they had to a wide range of emotions. Uh, that's just something that I, I really wish uh, we could do better at dispelling the myth that men just don't have a, a wide emotional range. Yeah. Um, and I got, I had a conversation with someone on Twitter today and it was like, um, they made a comment to the effect of like, okay, it's, it's, uh, it's society's fault that they don't put men's emotional issues on the same pedestal as uh, women's emotional, like mental health issues. Um, and I was like, you know, we're, we're at least, uh, pretty complicit in that because for centuries, we've just been like, we don't talk about our emotions. We don't communicate our emotions. We don't talk about how we're feeling. We don't, if we're suffering or if we're on the brink of a a breakdown or of suicide, like men more often than not, will just not say anything. And then we expect the world to take notice when we start talking about these, these mental health crises that are facing men. Like we need to start talking about this all the time and normalize talking about it um, for there to be any real societal progress in, in Mm -hmm. recognizing these things. Absolutely. I mean, as you were sharing just now, I'm, I got this, this really interesting idea is like how much of this is generational, right? Like, or ancestral where we are mimicking and repeating patterns that, that we're, needed maybe almost necessary uh you know my my grandfather was uh the parent of eight children his dad uh was the parent of 13 kids i could imagine that if you had 13 kids talking about your physical pain probably did not do you any favors no right so so you know maybe if it was that way with your physical self maybe with the emotional self you probably did the same thing, right? Or mm-hmm. if if your you know your forefathers went to war or something like that, like maybe some of that is. And again, I'm not I'm not excusing society or or our own responsibility, but it just like it, that thought entered in my mind. Like maybe some of this is just learned behavior because it was a necessary thing at one point to not be uh, expressive in our emotions. 
Yeah, I'm sure at a time it it made sense from a biological or evolutionary perspective. But uh, yeah, yeah, not so much when, uh, you know, we're in the midst of this uh, unprecedented global mental health crisis. Yeah, I don't have 13 kids. I have two. I think I can afford. (laughs) (laughs) I think I can afford to be a little emotional. It's okay. So um, I I'm, I'm curious, what is the customer makeup of sans bar of people who come into the bar is it is it from a from a identifiable gender makeup to an age makeup to an ethnicity makeup like what what does your clientele kind of look like do you see more men than women do you see more women than men what does it look like when uh, when you throw open the do- the doors to sans bar and people come in for a for a mocktail i want you to guess I would say that it is, there would be more women than men, but not a huge amount more. Are okay. you, okay. is that That's what, what I, yep. Um, I think there's substantially more, like, I would say like probably uh, like three, three or four women for every man. That is not too far off. It is 80, 20, 80, 80, 20, 80% of the customers that have uh, hope for us. <laughs> yeah, 80% of the customers that come to Sands Bar, uh, you know, more than two or three times a year, identify as being female. Interesting. And then my Instagram following is 80-20 as well. I mean, it, it varies, it varies. But it's, I mean, at one point it was 90-10. Like, it, it's wow. largely female. And, or, or individuals who identify as female. And I think that's because... Sands Bar is connection centered. And I think that men uh, have a lot of fears around connecting without having, you know, alcohol. Um, For the longest time, we did not have a TV. And so we did not have sports going on. So there wasn't anything to kind of fix your eyes on. Um, It was really about making those connections. And I just think that when men walked in, they were just really, um, they just, they just, I don't think that they were ready for, for that level. Not, and not all men. Cause some of my, you know, I got a couple of buddies that have just been just fantastic and just have shown up every weekend. Uh, they, they I know what they want to order. I have their drink ready for them. Um, and, and they're, they're here for it. They love the idea of connecting, but most of the guys, you know, will say that this is awkward. This is, this is different for me. Hmm. Well, Derek, there you go. That definitely, I, I felt like I was being <laughs> presumptive, but um, again, like um, we, we could say that not all, not all men or not all people who identify as men, right. but it does feel like the whole reason Scott and I started this podcast is, is because we were like um, men's voices in, um, in the sobriety or the, the wellness community. They, it's almost like it's the one area where I would ever say that men are underrepresented. Um, like everywhere else, we just won't shut up, (laughs) but then it comes to like, Oh, be an authentic. Because it's not, because it's not manly to not drink. That's, Mm, you know, that's why. No, and you're absolutely right. I was, I did the, the low, no summit. Uh, that's, or the mindful, the mindful drinking festival, which is the big festival in the UK. And I was able to do it this year because it was virtual. And I, when I was interacting with, you know, these vendors and people across the pond, 
the same thing that the drinking culture and, and that drinking culture in the UK is just so much more communal, right? Yeah. Um, it really is about going to the pub and having a few pints with your friends. Like it, it, it's, it's strong cultural, it's a strong cultural link, right? And they said the same thing, that part of the struggle is to get men to understand that they are still a man if they don't drink a pint at the pub with their friends. And it's so hard to tell men that, that is the reality because they're so afraid of losing that friend group. Yeah. Especially when it's like you, you remember that sense of belonging you felt when you took your first drink, like for, yeah. for men, that's just, that's something they carry with them their entire lives. And um, you know, for them to say they equate, if you don't take that drink, every, every person around you won't be there anymore. Like you will, you will lose your ability to connect with these people. Um, and that's absolutely what kept me drinking well, well past when I should have stopped. Like, you know, uh, it hit a point where it was just like, every time I drank, I did something shitty and incredibly harmful to myself or, or the people around me. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was just, I was worried that, uh, I, ultimately would just return to that state of, of aloneness or unbelonging uh, that I felt before I drank for the first time. So, yeah, I, I will say that I believe that this space is this movement, this sober, sober, curious movement, the expansion of the sober sobriety spectrum is a women led movement. I really do believe that, uh, you know, there's, that's just the way that this movement, much like the temperance movement a hundred years ago, although that was rooted in a whole lot of more po- kind of political stuff. Yeah. Uh, this is a very grassroots movement and it's led by individuals who identify as female. And I am more than okay with taking a back seat sometimes in, in this arena because uh, those, this world is built for men and it's built, you know, as kind of a man's world, uh, which is just unfair and wrong. And so in this space, I'm very comfortable with acknowledging and understanding that the leaders in this space are primarily women. And uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't scare me or intimidate me. Um, I try to provide as many platforms for individuals who identify as female and trans individuals as possible because I know that outside of this movement, um, that's not the case. They don't always, they're not always the leaders in, in a space. And so I try to use my, my maleness and I'm man enough to make decisions for myself. And so the decision I make as a grown man is to create platforms for people who um, are often marginalized in our society. That is fantastic. Yeah, that was awesome. Kudos to you for, yeah, uh, for doing that. So what's next for Sandsbar? What do you, uh, what do you see in the future? Where, where's Sandsbar heading? You talked about how you had uh, spent a lot of time during, you know, quarantine and lockdown, mm-hmm. kind of build it, building out your plans for world domination. So, uh, yeah, what, what does that look like? <laughs> well, I mean, I so one thing that 2020 taught me was just to plan, plan, and plan. Um, and so now I have a plan for another pandemic. I have a plan for volcanoes. I have a plan for uh, separation of the continent. Uh, you know, I, I got I got a plan for everything now. Aliens, I got it. I got, yeah, there's nothing that can happen. And of course I say that and something of course crazy will happen. But, yeah, um, careful. No, yeah, I, I literally am trying to like figure out uh, how to make this not so dependent upon just Sandsbar Austin or the tour, which were my two big revenue streams. And so um, 
I don't think I've, yeah, I don't think I've really said this anywhere else, but uh, I plan on um, creating more opportunities for individuals to learn about um, creating non-alc spaces and sober spaces across North America. And uh, I'll be launching something in December that's uh, just going to be fantastic. And I think it's going to really revolutionize and accelerate uh, the proliferation of sober spaces in North America. So I, I will tease that, that I'm working on, on that. Uh, but I've also, during quarantine, been working on uh, something that I'm calling Fireside Connections. And it's kind of the outdoors um, offshoot brand of Sands Bar. So it's kind of the Sands Bar experience by a campfire. And we go on these, these weekends, and uh, we've done this for the last three months. And 80% of the people that come on this trip are female. Uh, and it's been an incredible experience because we're able to socially distance. It's kind of pandemic proof, you know, in that we're, you know, able to kind of have food separate and everyone's has their own little space. There's lots of space here in Texas and it's been great. So I'll probably grow and develop that a little bit more. Um, again, I'll, I'm working on this way to kind of expand, uh, you know, create an Uber for sober spaces. Um, <laughs> And, you know, somewhere in there, write a book. Uh, you know, I've been wanting to do that for a long time. And this conversation right here, um, I've, I've often struggled with, like, how to frame this differently than any other thing that's kind of out there in the quit-lit space. And I'm really like realizing, like, the lens of manhood would be a great way to frame this book. It would be. It would be. And you are, uh, you are a, a very... Uh, qualified and well-spoken individual. And I, I would read the hell. I, I would definitely read that book. So, you know, right. I expect to see, uh, uh, I see it on shelves. What January, February at the, the yeah, 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 yeah. Just like yeah. churn it out. <laughs> Look, man, when you have free time, you, you can do a lot. And, uh, yeah, I've just been a lot of time just really thinking about, um, the rest of the world. And, you know, I feel like after this, this, this pandemic ends, we are going to be starved for social connection and we are going to want it like we've never wanted it before because for the, for the most part, we've been apart from each other for the past year. And, you know, here in the United States, it's been a very contentious year on many fronts. And I feel like we're going to need more spaces to connect. And so uh, my hope is that, uh, you know, maybe fall 2021, we kind of get back to a sense of normalcy, but even if we don't, we still have opportunities to connect virtually in other ways. I love that, man. And so mm-hmm. excited to, to see what you're coming out with. Um, obviously, can't wait to get uh, Sandsbar up here um, and really looking forward to see what, uh, what news you have coming up uh, in December. Um, one last question before we wrap it up. Chris, I cannot wait. Two last, que- two last questions. Um, I just want to say, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Again, really appreciate the the voice that you are in the space and, and being such a, uh, a positive and inspiring uh, male figure, as we have said, in, in a space predominantly dominated by women. So thank you for that. Uh, where can people learn more about you or find you on the internet? That's the first question. Yeah, so you can find me mostly on Instagram at sans underscore bar. Uh, I do have a website, um, thesandsbar.com, but yeah, really just Instagram, <laughs> Instagram. And if you want to get a hold of me, uh, and I mean this sincerely, email me, sandsbarinfo at gmail.com or DM me. Uh, I really 
am a person who needs connection and, and I still seek deep connection in my life. And I'm open to as many connections as I can make in this world. So please, if you're hearing this and you just want to know more about me or just want to connect and you're feeling lonely, man, woman, non-binary individual, like reach out because I, I want to connect with you. Love that. Second question. You get a time machine to go back to five or six-year-old Chris and tell him everything you've learned about being a man from then to now. What do you tell him? Mm. I tell him that he did not break his dad, that he is not broken, and that he will spend the rest of his life being a builder. And that is his legacy. And that he is worthy of love, is cooler than he thinks he is. <laughs> and to start playing the piano, because had I learned, had I started playing the piano at five years old, I'd probably be like, uh, you know, okay. I'd at least have some skills, you know, True, not yeah. just playing chopsticks. <laughs> That's the only thing I wish, I would, you know, five-year-old Chris would have like stuck with the piano or done something great like that. But yeah, that is a, I hope you ask everyone on your podcast that question, because that question but I mean, it hits me especially hard, but you know, I was like, it would have been okay if I cried, but I just like, whew, man. It, it would have been, man. Like we were I, trying. I, I, been, I, I was getting, trying. yeah, yeah. I, I was, and I, of course I just deflected with humor, but, um, yeah. don't we all know that's what hey, we do. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. We're, we're, we're getting I'm, there. <laughs> I'm a human being. Like I'm a human exactly. being. Man. What part of like, I'm going to be real with you. Don't you understand? So yeah, like that's, I'm still going to do that. But, um, no, I mean, that's, I'll think about that when I go to sleep tonight, just like um, not just loving that part of me because I've done a lot of inner child work and like nurturing that five-year-old Chris, but I've also learned to, to nurture all the other versions of Chris, that kid who was the anxious kid in, in elementary school, that 16-year-old who was about to make that fateful decision and take that first drink, that Chris that, uh, you know, went to jail, uh, you know, that Chris who, you know, broke his mom's heart and, and never thought he was going to get better. Like the Chris that did all those things, like to make peace with all versions of that boy and that man and to show up as an imperfect individual and, and, and love that imperfection and love those imperfections about me. Um, and then live that, live that loud and then live that in a way that other people feel liberated enough to be that way themselves. Like that is, that's the goal. That, that's the goal. And it's not, and if no one else changes, if no one else um, feels free, I feel free. And I feel like I don't have to take a drink today because I like who I am today. And I like who I am when no one's watching. I like who I am when this podcast ends. I, I, I like who I am when I lay down tonight. And I have peace in who I am. Even though a lot of this is, not where I want to be. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not anyone else. It's just Chris. I love that, man. And I would like to thank this Chris and all of the Chris's for, mm. you know, contributing to who you are today. Um, you are, uh, like honestly an, an inspiration and, and a beacon to, uh, men and the, the broader sobriety community. So, uh, dude, can't thank you enough for, for coming on and sharing your, uh, your story with us. And, uh, 
sincerely appreciate it. Robriety is a podcast about sobriety, mental health, and wellness for men. It is produced by Van Sober and hosted by Scott Graham and Derek Bolton. Please note, nothing in this podcast is a substitute for treatment of any kind. And if you or someone you love is struggling with addiction or mental health issues, 